Our Bibles are open to the fourth chapter of Matthew this morning. We've been in a series of messages. Then Jesus came looking at the first four chapters of Matthew and the early life, the birth, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is the final message in this season one of our journey through Matthew, and we look forward to a great time of Disciple Now this coming week in which we'll have a guest speaker this coming Sunday to finish off Disciple Now, and then the following Sunday we'll begin season two of our study of Matthew, uh, delving eight weeks into the Beatitudes of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's going to be a wonderful and special series of messages on what I'm calling the Blessed Life. And we're going to find out how to live a blessed life, even though it's an upside-down life, according to Jesus, in a remarkable way, one of the most famous of all of his teaching passages in the Bible. Today, for a few minutes, we're going to talk about what it means to be a disciple, according to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been around Hillcrest for a while, you know that our church is organized around a mission statement. Most organizations today have a mission statement of some kind. Sometimes it'll be referred to as a mission statement, sometimes a purpose statement. Uh, many of you are familiar with ours. If not, you should be. It's a statement that helps us to clarify why we're here. What is it that marks us as unique? What are the crucial things that we believe to be most important about serving the Lord Jesus Christ in our community uh, and in our world. And as we begin today, I'd like to remind you of our mission statement, largely because I think it comes to bear on the larger passage of Scripture that we're going to be talking about for a few minutes this morning. So let's refresh our memories if they need refreshing today. We're going to put the mission statement on the screen. We're going to say it out loud together. Here's why we're here as a people at Hillcrest. Ready? Together. Our mission at Hillcrest is to help people in becoming like Christ who worship God, connect with others, serve the world, and invest in someone. I saw a bunch of people looking at the screens rather than me. I didn't have to look at a screen this morning, and you shouldn't have to either. That statement is written briefly enough around four basic core principles. Let's say it again as it remains on the screen together. Our mission at Hillcrest is to help people in becoming like Christ, who worship God, connect with others, serve the world, and invest in someone. How about that this morning? Now, you ought to be able to do that too. Uh, and don't tell me you, you don't have a good memory. If I offered you $100 to memorize it, you'd have it memorized in 30 seconds. Now, at the heart of that statement, of course, is the phrase becoming like Christ. That summarizes the statement in a nutshell. Our mission is to help people in becoming like Christ. Christ. And that's a phrase, of course, that boil that down to one word and you get the word discipleship. Our mission at Hillcrest is Christian discipleship in a nutshell. And as we open our Bibles to the fourth chapter of Matthew today, we're going to learn what it means to be a disciple. And what is a disciple? Well, that's one of those things most people could tell, oh, I know what a disciple is, but then you ask them to define it and they don't know how to do it, right? I know what it is when I see it, but I'm not quite sure how to define it. There are all kinds of definitions out there on what it means to be uh, a disciple, but you need to know the basic uh, framework of what it means to be a disciple 
Because whether you know it or not, that's the most common way that followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are referred to in the New Testament. You say, well, I thought it was Christian. The word Christian is only used in the Bible three times. Three times and that's it. You know how many times the word disciple is used? 260 times. Followed closely, or not so closely really, by the word saint, which is used 60 times to refer to the people of God. So you got disciples, saints, Christians, same ones, all three, referring to the same group of people. But the overwhelming majority of references to the people of God are bound up in this word disciple. And we created something of a uh, definition, kind of a Hillcrest definition of what it means to be a disciple a few years ago. And we'll resurrect that this morning just in case you're not quite sure what the concept means. Put that on the screen and you can jot some notes down about it here as we go along this morning. A disciple is a believer in Christ who follows him, learns his ways, and helps others to live biblically. That's what a Christian disciple is. It's a follower of Jesus, who, uh, or a believer in Jesus rather, who follows Jesus, learns Jesus' ways, and then leads others to live biblically. And so there's a part of discipleship that involves God, there's a part of discipleship that involves you, and there's a part of discipleship that involves other people around you as well. Now here in Matthew chapter 4, as we pick up the narrative, we find Jesus is fresh off of his baptism and fresh from 40 days of spiritual warfare out in the middle of the Judean desert as he's going tete-a-tete with the very devil himself. There's an undefined time that has now passed since Jesus was liberated from the desert and his experience with the devil. And Matthew tells us here in verse 12 of chapter 4 that when uh, Jesus heard that John had been arrested, John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, we're going to talk more about John's arrest and subsequent execution at a later time in this study, but for now, we simply want to focus on the actual beginnings of Jesus' three-year public ministry, uh, a ministry that began with his baptism and then was followed by those temptation experiences, and his ministry, his public ministry, which would last for about three years, began in earnest in his home country of Galilee. Uh, the baptism and the temptations of Jesus took place in the south of Israel in the region of Judea. Uh, but when Jesus began to teach and to attract those massive crowds, it was in his home country in Galilee to the north of modern-day Israel. And Matthew summarizes what was happening there in Galilee not here at the beginning, but actually at the end of chapter 4. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of this Galilean ministry, let's jump down to the very end of chapter 4. And what you're going to find is what I call a summary statement of the early life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ there in Galilee. Matthew says in verse 23, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, even further north. And then verse 25 says, Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis 
and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. That's north, that's south, uh, and that's east. And the only reason that disciples weren't following from the west is that's where the Mediterranean Sea is. And the only ones that could follow him to the west were fish in the sea. Amen. But this is what we call a summary statement. There's not a lot of detail there. Matthew just gives us a broad brushstroke. And if he had detailed everything that happened in this early ministry, man, we would have had volume after volume after volume. And so the gospel writers oftentimes will give you these little nuggets, these little summary statements that kind of give you a big picture of all the wonderful things that were happening through the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It started in Galilee, spread north, spread south, spread to the east, and many people were coming under the influence of the powerful teaching and healing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew is going to highlight for us three aspects of this early ministry of the Lord Jesus, and all three of these aspects have something to do with what it means to be a disciple. They have something to do with what Jesus was doing principally in his teaching ministry, namely calling and attracting disciples. And then it also conveys to us what a disciple is and what a disciple actually does. The first thing I want you to notice here is that to be a disciple, first of all, you gotta see the light. You gotta see the light. Hank Williams Sr.'s song, Notwithstanding, amen. I saw the light. I saw the light, no more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Well, that's a very biblical concept, a very biblical song, actually. And that concept of seeing the light is basically a metaphorical way to define and describe what we call salvation. It's what we call conversion. Somebody that's been saved by biblical definition is someone who has seen the light. Light plays a marvelous role all throughout the biblical narrative from the very first utterances. Let there be light in the Bible. And there was light to the pillar of fire that was leading the nation of Israel out in the desert to that wonderful navigational light that shined in the sky that the wise men followed to the Lord Jesus Christ and countless other images that you find in the Bible surrounding this concept of light. Light is a metaphor used especially by the gospel writers to convey the essence of what's needed in order to bring life into otherwise spiritually dead people. Apart from light, nothing can live. In order for there to be life, there must first be the presence of light. Look at what Matthew says here, beginning in verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great what? Light. And for these dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. 
Now here again, Matthew uh, quotes from the Old Testament to demonstrate how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's about the seventh or eighth fulfillment of prophecy that the Jewish Matthew pulls out of the Old Testament in order to point his immediate audience to Jesus, saying unto them, this is the one, this is the guy, this is the Messiah that we've all been waiting for. See, I told you he's going to begin his ministry in Galilee because that's exactly what Isaiah said would happen. And he is that light that shines in a very dark place so that those who are living in the land of spiritual death because of the corruption of sin can see that light and be transformed by it. This is, of course, taken from the ninth chapter of Isaiah. Very familiar Old Testament passage. We quote it much of the time, most every year at our Christmas Eve service especially. That's the passage uh, which introduces uh, the Messiah as, you remember it, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and lastly, Prince of Peace. And that's who our Savior would be. But he begins uh, with this, Matthew does, with this obvious contrast between a world that exists in spiritual darkness and a Messiah who is himself the light of everlasting life. And never forget this. The only thing that can overcome darkness is what? Light, nothing else. The only thing that can overcome darkness is light. Many years ago as a teenager, I stood in the bowels of Mammoth Cave for the very first time. Anybody ever been to Mammoth Cave over in Kentucky? Y'all need to get out more. You really do. I've just, oh, Mammoth Cave is awesome in every respect. And I remember walking down there as a teenage boy, not sure what to expect. And we got literally in the bowels of that thing. We went down, 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 down. We didn't find a ring of fire, but we did go down, down, down. And the ranger was talking to us about how long that cave had been there and what had happened and all this. And then all of a sudden, he gave a command and they turned the lights out. And I have never in my life experienced darkness like that. I mean, it was absolute darkness. You couldn't see the palm of your hand if you put it so close in front of your face that it literally touched your nose. That's how dark it was. And that's what sin does to you, brothers and sisters. Apart from Jesus Christ and the light of salvation that he brings into your life, your life is just that dark. You may not be aware of it, but it is. You're so dark in terms of your heart that you're not even aware that you need to be saved unless and until God shows up in some form of spiritual light and reveals to your heart and mind just how sinful and how far from God you truly are. See, that's the thing about the sovereignty of God in salvation. You'll be forever lost unless God shows up through the gospel. In some, Because the only thing that can overcome darkness is light. And you can't gin up spiritual light. You can't craft it. You can't make it up. You can't provide it unless God shows up by his grace and shines the light of Jesus Christ. We're all hopelessly and forever lost. And speaking of that, that's the light. The light. What is the light? It's not a what, it's a who. His name is Jesus Christ. Christ is the light. And he made that very clear in his own teaching ministry later on. You'll find it in the Gospel of John, one of the key markers of the identity of Jesus 
John chapter 8 and verse 12. Jesus said it. It's an exclusive in the Greek New Testament. I myself and I alone am the, res- uh, am the light of the world. He said that other one too. I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me, uh, whoever uh, walks in me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You see the connection there between light and life. I myself, ego I me in the Greek New Testament, that's an intensive form. I myself, I alone, nobody else but me, am the light of the world. And so whether it's the physical or the spiritual realm, the point's clear, you need light in order to have life. You may not remember it at this stage of your life, but one of the first biological principles that you probably learned in school is a process known as photosynthesis. Y'all remember photosynthesis in biology class? That's a scientific name for the means by which a plant converts light into energy, light into food. Light strikes a plant, and then man, all kind of things just start to happen within the life of that plant. It merges, that light does, with carbon dioxide, water, other minerals, in order to produce carbohydrates and oxygen. And with all of that happening, through the stimulus of the light, you have a plant that begins to grow because it produces food that enables it to grow. But here's the point. No light, no food. No food, no light. It withers on the vine and will simply die. And here's the thing about us as human beings. We need the same kind of reaction to happen in our life. That's the same necessity that every human being has spiritually. The spiritually blind need light just as much as a physical plant needs light. The spiritually dead need light that brings life. And that's exactly the reason that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to earth. Remember it? I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more what? Abundantly. Well, the way he brings light is, or life is to bring light. Light is necessary for life. The, over thing, uh, the only thing that can overcome darkness and death is light. And so, uh, to be a disciple, you have to first be saved from the darkness of sin. And the only way to be saved from the darkness of sin and from the death that the darkness brings is to see the light and to respond to the light. I wish, I wish old Hank Williams Jr. would have put that part in there too. Because just because you see the light does not necessarily mean you're going to be changed by the light. And that takes me to the second aspect because the light demands a response. To be a disciple is to see the light, but to be a disciple, secondly, is to turn toward the light, to turn from sin. God always takes the initiative in salvation. I mean, it's God who sends the light, but the sinner has to respond to the light. And that response, as we've already seen primarily in the ministry and the teaching of John the Baptist, that response is summarized with one critical word. When I say that to be a disciple is to turn from sin, what one word would you use in place of turning from sin? Repent. That's right. Beautiful. The pastor loves it when his pets remember what he says. 
Repentance. Now Jesus returns to it himself. And he says here in verse 17, from that time, from the time Jesus went in Galilee and began life separated from Nazareth, making his home in Capernaum, little fishing village there on Lake Galilee, Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And just as it was with John the Baptist, John preached exactly the same message. Repentance was the heart and soul of the preaching of Jesus' ministry. It's the first word out of his mouth. The first ministry word of both John and Jesus is this common word, Repent. But by the way, let me say, it's not something that he just did once. Not only is the word repent the first word out of Jesus' mouth, practically it's the last word out of Jesus' mouth. Look at Luke 24 and verse 46. This is just before the very ending of Luke's gospel where the doctor says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that what? Say it out loud. That Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And with that, Jesus tells his disciples, stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the Holy Spirit there. And with that final word of instruction, Jesus then ascends into heaven and takes his leave until he would come again. And at the beginning and at the end of Jesus' ministry, it's very obvious that Jesus is preaching the absolute necessity of repentance when it comes to salvation. Now, without belaboring the point, because we've already talked some about this, but I think it bears repeating that repentance implies two things, a change of mind that leads to a change of life. Repentance begins on the inside, but it's always obvious. True repentance begins on the inside and then works its way out in an obvious change of of life. There are two principal words used in the New Testament for repentance. The first is the inward word that means a change of mind, and that's really what it means. You just have a complete turnaround in your mind and thought. It's what Paul called having a renewed mind. But then the second word uh, is the word to turn. We've talked about oftentimes realizing you're going the wrong way and you need to be on the right road and you're not on the right road. In order to get on the right road, you have to make an intentional decision to get off the wrong road. You do that by making a U-turn and going a completely different direction. And that's the idea of the second word. It's a change of mind, this thing called repentance, a change of mind that leads to a change of heart, that leads to a change of will, that leads to a changed life. And this is where true Christian discipleship begins. Listen, for every disciple, there comes a time when the light of Christ shines And when that light shines, the first thing that happens is you learn something about yourself that the devil was keeping from you up until the time of the light shining. Namely, that your life is just totally corrupted because of sin. That's what life reveals, or light rather reveals. You know, when you go into a doctor's office or a dentist's office, the first thing they do is put that big light on you, 
The dentist goes exploring down in your mouth, but he doesn't do it in the darkness. And whenever the surgeon does the same thing, they take you to a room that just cataclysmically illuminated with light because they need that light to see where the decay is, right? And the same thing happens when the light of Jesus comes into your life. It reveals decay. You learn something about yourself when God by his grace and through the preaching of the gospel or the testimony of the gospel, uh, the light shines into your life and it reveals something about you. Uh, I know in Luke's gospel, although Matthew doesn't include this story in his gospel, but if you look at the parallel passage in Luke, um, he shares a passage about when the disciple named Peter first meets the Lord. And Jesus shows up and they've been out fishing, you remember, all night, hadn't caught anything, right? You all remember this story. And this preacher shows up and says, throw the net out on the other side of the, of the boat. And you all know Peter, right? Foot in mouth disease, all that stuff. And Peter probably said, you know, I've heard about this guy. He's an itinerant preacher who knows nothing about fishing. And it's all, I'm sure that he thought, who are you to tell me how to fish? I'm telling you, we've been doing this our whole life. It's how we make our living. They're just not biting today. And Jesus kind of nags him a little bit. said, no, 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 throw it out on the other side of the boat. And he does. And you remember what happened, right? I'm telling you, it was, I don't know if it's a, it's not a crop, but I call it a bumper crop of fish. I mean, it's a massive catch. And so, so much so, the Luke goes out of his way. Of course, he's a doctor, so he's into the details. You get more detail in Luke than any place else. And he says, the nets were beginning to break, and it almost collapsed the entire boat. So great was the haul of fish. But that's not what's most important. You know what's most important? Is Peter's response to that. And you remember what Peter said. There's an important phrase that Peter said. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Oh, Lord. Man, you know something? Light is shining, man, through this experience. And the first thing that happens is Peter realizes something about himself, particularly as he's standing in the presence of holiness, that he's a sinful man. And that, brothers and sisters, is reflective of a radical response to the gospel. It's reflective of a real change that's happening deep within the heart of Peter. And that's a change. Are y'all still with me? Say amen. That change always accompanies genuine salvation. I mean, if that hadn't happened to you, then you probably haven't been born again because it's this kind of change, this revelation of who I am in comparison to a holy God, a holy Christ, that leads to something that must happen in order for a person to be born again, namely repentance. And repentance will happen, man, when you realize just how broken and corrupted you are. That's what leads to genuine repentance, all right? So you're all with me so far? Say amen. amen. To be a disciple, God must first shine the light, and only God can shine the light. God always makes the first response in salvation. But then the light demands a response. 
Some see the light, by the way, and respond negatively. Not everybody will embrace the Christ of the light. You know, the thing about light is sometimes you can shine light on a critter and it won't walk to the light. It'll try to get away from the light as fast as it can. Because as crazy as it may sound there, some people prefer the darkness to the light. Because light exposes, light reveals. And so some people go back to what they consider to be the perceived safety of the darkness. But true disciples approach the light. They respond to the light. They repent of the darkness of their heart, turn from their sin, and find new life in Jesus Christ. And when you find new life in Jesus Christ, that's when you can begin a new journey with Jesus Christ, one that's built on faith. And that takes me to a third thing about being a disciple, namely, to be a disciple is to follow Christ. To be a disciple is to see the light, followed by a turning from sin, repentance, followed by a new journey of following Jesus Christ. Matthew kind of gives us a summary of the calling of the first disciples. It's not quite as dramatic as Luke's account, but it's important nonetheless. Let's take a look at it beginning in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And this is where Luke inserts his broader story about the miraculous catch of fish. But then Matthew summarizes by saying, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, which I'm sure he didn't appreciate at all, and followed who? They followed him. They followed Jesus. Let me make this statement. There's a lot of different kinds of callings that we see in the Bible. There's the call to salvation. There's the call to service. There's the call to repentance. All kind of callings in the Bible. The fundamental call of the Lord Jesus Christ on every human life is a call to follow him. The call to follow is the fundamental call of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in order to be a disciple, you have to follow Jesus, not just a response to salvation. It's a total and complete surrender of your life to the lordship and leadership of Jesus Christ upon which you follow him all the way to the point where you become like him in the new heaven and the new earth. Remember our definition of a disciple that we, uh, that we uh, talked about just a few moments ago? A disciple is a believer in Christ who what? Who follows him. 
And that, of course, implies relationship. It implies connection. It implies intimacy. It applies observation, even imitation. And it's not difficult, really, to determine who follows uh, another person. It's not at all difficult to determine who follows a popular politician because they tend to parrot what the politician parrots, right? It's not difficult uh, to determine who follows a popular athlete because they usually wear the guy's jersey for crying out loud. Or at least, at the very least, they sport the team of his, uh, or his team on a cap or another garment of some kind, on a jacket or whatever. It's not hard to determine who follows a popular Bible teacher because they just post their quotes all day long, you know, on their social media. It's not hard to determine who's following whom. Because we tend to repeat what they say. We tend to embrace what they embrace. We tend to wear what they wear, post what they post. Jesus comes across two sets of fishermen brothers here on the shores of Lake Galilee, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And I mean, without so much as a howdy do, he gives them this fundamental call of the gospel, follow me. And the thing about it was, Apparently, none of those boys needed a whole lot of convincing because they do it, and they do it fast. They, they don't have to pull out a calculator. They don't have to pull out an eight and a half by 11 pad and draw the line down the middle. All right, let's list the pros and cons here, this decision. They don't have to get on the phone and call their father or their mother or someone with whom they're close in order to determine what it is that they're supposed to do, Matthew uses the same word to describe both responses from both sets of brothers. It's the very common biblical word, euthus, in the Greek New Testament, immediately. That's how they responded. Immediately, without delay, without calculation. Peter and Andrew immediately dropped their nets, left them there. James and John immediately got out of the boat, left their father Zebedee, who probably owned the boat, sitting right there in it. And he may have been, in his aged condition, dependent on those boys for his provision to some degree. It reminds me of the story about Jesus calling later on in the, later on in the Gospels. And then somebody said, well, first let me go bury my father. You remember that? He gets all these excuses. Let me do this first. Let me go hug my folks first. Let me do this. And Jesus, every time, gave him the same response, which was what? See, you don't even like it so much, you're not even going to say it. His response was, no. No. Let the dead bury their own dead. See, all that was was an excuse. We're not told whether the guy's father was 44 or 104. That guy's father may have lived another 40 years. Jesus said, no. All that stuff will work out. You just trust me. Again, what is obedience? Trusting Christ and leaving all the consequences to him. Immediately, they responded to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, having said all of that, the implication is, that it's costly to follow Jesus. And I don't do anybody any favors 
by telling you otherwise. Yes, it requires sacrifice to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is a free gift, but it's not cheap. Listen, your salvation costs God, the Son, His only Son, cost His life. And it will cost you something to follow Jesus. Later, when Jesus begins to teach His disciples about His upcoming death, you remember Peter, foot and mouth disease, right? In the upper room, Peter kind of takes Jesus aside. He's talking about, you know, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But listen, he's talking about going to die. And what was Peter's response? He pulls Jesus aside and kind of gives him a semi-rebuke. We have left everything in order to follow you. That's what Peter tells him. Here's the thing. That was true. They had We've left everything in order to follow. You can't be talking like this. Because they had visions of grandeur and glory in the here and now. And you remember what Jesus said? It's not recorded here, but it's recorded in Mark 10. Jesus said there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not what? Say it out loud. Receive a hundredfold. Now, in this time, there will be a blessing now. You just can't conceive it. But there'll be a blessing in the here and now that far exceeds the cost. But even beyond that, in the age to come, eternal life. See, that's the thing about sacrificing to follow Jesus. It's costly, but only from the perspective of the world. Never from the perspective of the kingdom is it costly to follow Jesus. But notice also that the basic call that Jesus gives here is not only a call to follow, it's a call to invest, to invest your life in others. Calling is not just about you. It's not just about your spiritual growth. It's not just about growing and becoming like Christ. There is a part of discipleship that involves other people, people in your family, people in your neighborhood, people in your community, people in your office or in your place of business or in your vocational sphere of influence. It's one of the most familiar uh, words that Jesus ever gives here. Verse 19, where he says to them, follow me and I will make you to become what? Fishers of men. You see the other focus there? It's not just about us and what we receive from it. It's about us and what we give away to those who need the light. So we're called to follow, and the first part of that call to follow is a call to fish. And I think there's a very real sense in which if we're not fishing for men, we're not following Jesus Christ, at least not very closely. Because the call to follow is a call to fish. Not for sea creatures, but for land sharks. Amen. I mean, we're called to pray for people. What does that look like, fishing for men? Well, it begins with praying for people that you know need to know the Lord. What lost people are you currently praying for that they might be saved? Any lost people you're concerned about? In your family and friends, you probably will never fish 
for men unless you first pray for them that God would soften their heart and open the door. Fishing for men means that you're prepared to give a biblical defense of what you believe about Jesus. The Bible says we ought to be able to do that. Always be prepared to give an account, a defense for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect. Are you able to do that? It means that we're called to share with our family and we're called to share with our friends and our neighbors. Not only the gospel, but how the gospel has impacted our life. Remember that Samaritan woman went back to her village and she told everybody she knew, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. I mean, first thing she did was to go fishing for men and women. Following Jesus, fishing for men means we're called to love the lost. We spend way too much time being mad at the lost. Nowhere in the gospel does it say be mad at lost people. There's a lot of places in the gospel where it says love them and go fishing for them and build bridges to them in the same way that Jesus did for the purpose of having an opportunity to pour the gospel into their life that that mess about their life that so disturbs you might actually be cataclysmically changed because the light shines in their life through your testimony of the gospel and they understand something about themselves that they never did apart from the shining of that light and they turn from all that's corrupt and wrong and they turn toward Jesus and they make a decision to seek forgiveness and to follow him with their own lie. You say, well, pastor, I just don't know that the Lord has gifted me to do that. Are you saved? This is not a calling. The calling to fish for men to follow Jesus is not a calling for the super elite. It's a calling given to every disciple. Did you hear me say amen? Every disciple. Follow Jesus, fish for others. Jesus said in the first chapter of Acts, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my what? Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. And by the way, that's also in our definition of what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is someone who believes in Jesus, follows him, learns his ways, and then what's the last part of that definition? Leads others to live biblically. Following Jesus will be the most important decision that you ever make. And to fail to follow Jesus will be the costliest decision that you ever make. And in the kingdom of God, as we go on through this gospel of Matthew, you'll surely see it if you're wide awake listening, that there's a big difference in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in being a casual spectator and a radical disciple. Jesus never calls casual spectators, but he does call radical disciples. C.S. Lewis said one time, the only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Amen. <laughs> Seemed like Jesus had something to say in the third chapter of Revelation about lukewarm Christianity. How it turns God's stomach sour. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Lukewarmness. That's a great statement. Man, you can be cold toward the gospel. It's actually better 
the Bible says to be cold toward the gospel than to be in the middle about it. Because the only thing Christianity can't be is moderately important. That's reflected not only here in Matthew 4, all throughout the New Testament. Here in this vignette of the early ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a lovely progression, and I hope you've seen it this morning. To be a disciple is to see the light, turn from your sin, and then follow Jesus as a totally transformed and radically committed disciple of Jesus Christ. It's the fundamental call of Christ, and God help us never to forget it. Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. This is God's word, and all God's people said, amen and amen.